Listener Production. Welcome to Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. My guest today is recognised as one of Australia's finest investigators. Chris O'Connor was on the team that solved the 1986 bombing of Melbourne's Russell Street Police Headquarters. In the 90s, Chris served on the Spectrum Task Force that pursued a serial child abductor in Victoria. The media dubbed the offender Mr Cruel and he remains at large to this day, if he's still alive. Chris retired in 2013, but that case still haunts him. He ran Victoria Police's Child Exploitation Unit for a decade and locked up an astonishing variety of predators. But today he poses some difficult questions. The last taboo, sexual abuse that takes place within families, often goes unreported. Chris O'Connor calls it the number one challenge to society. A warning, this podcast includes discussion of sexual abuse of children. Connor, welcome to Australian Detectives. Thank you. Thirty-six years in Victoria Police. You were dealing mostly in sex crimes, and I guess you've had the chance to look into the deepest recesses of the human psyche and soul. I mean, you looked at Mr. Cruel, the investigation there, the serial sex offender. There, you've dealt with abuse by the clergy, on and on and on. How does that all rest with you now? You've been retired now for about eight years. Eight years, yes. How does that all sit with you these days? Very comfortably, I think, uh, Adam, in a lot of ways. Uh, in some ways, I've got my life back. In other ways, I've been able to use what I've picked up over the eon and uh, use it to uh, other purposes. Mate, you're a stronger man than me because I think most people, when they think about sex offences against children, there's nothing worse. It's the most heinous thing and it has the deepest impact on our society. How can you go through all those years... And sit here today and tell me you haven't got a bit of baggage with you. Um, well, it's for others to say whether I've got baggage, I suppose. But from my point of view, I don't think I have. I think because uh, I was fortunate to be able to have a balanced perspective. My children were growing up at the time that I first began in that area. And to some degree, I suppose I was protecting my own children and uh, my nieces and nephews and uh, those are friends and so forth. So I had selfish motives you know, from that perspective, which helped me balance the horror and reality of what I was confronted with. Is there one case that still stays with you? Uh, there's always a lot of cases that stays with me. Or a moment? Yes, uh, there, there are moments. There's particularly the feeling of, Achievement once uh, a jury verdict is passed. Perhaps the most impactful of that and, and, and the most descriptive of that was the um, guilty convictions of uh, some of the Russell Street bombers, particularly Stan Taylor, who I interviewed with Ken Williams. And uh, it was, the setting was surreal, I suppose. It was, it was six o'clock, I don't know, I think it was August evening, midweek dreary Melbourne weather. 
the lights of the Supreme Court were on inside the in Court Four, um, and those who uh, know Court Four, it's beautiful wood and ornate ceiling and surrounds and uh, furnishings is uh, from the Victorian era. And um, the jury returned their verdict in this atmosphere. And, of course, the, the courtroom was all hushed and when the murder charge was called and uh, it was a guilty verdict, you sit in a moment fleeting but uh, a moment of suspended animation. And then the realisation hits and uh, all I wanted to do was go home. But uh, the self-satisfaction that I personally felt uh, was uh, something that endured for my whole career after that. But then you have cases like Mr Cruel, mm. the serial sex offender in the 80s and 90s. We don't know how many cases mm. he he was involved with, but... Suffice it to say, he is still at large if he's alive. How does that one sit with you? Very heavily. I don't let it rule my life because, look, the reality is uh, up until my retirement in 2013, I was still actively working on aspects of that investigation. So professionally, it took up quite a deal of my, my career. The fact that we didn't solve it or haven't solved it to date to some degree, is is an element of the historic nature of the crimes. Very little forensic evidence, if any, was located in those crime scenes. Indeed. And I think one of the biggest issues, of course, is that we don't even know that all these instances are connected to one person. We have no. 1985, um, a 14-year-old girl in Hampton was uh, attacked mm. and then a, a 30-year-old woman a 14-year-old boy, 87, an 11-year-old girl in Lower Plenty, 1987, another young lady, 1988, we can name them, Sharon Wills, uh, 1990, Nikki Linus, and of course, 1991, Carmen Chan is abducted from her home in Templestowe. A year later, she turns up mm. with at least three bullet holes in her head. Mm. Are you sure it's all one perpetrator? No, I'm not. No. No, I am not. Um when we're talking about the behavioural sciences, the key element is often variability. There are so many variables that we can only give guesstimations. Now, based on the information that we have and based on the information with regard to Carmen Chan that we knew up to the stage of her abduction, we couldn't eliminate those investigations. So... On the basis that we can't eliminate them, we have to consider that they are all related. Yeah. Um, we've spoken about this many times yeah. and, and I've passed on information from mm. people who ring, ring me up and say, give it to Chris O'Connor yeah. and so forth, and you, mm. I guess you're always receptive to it, mm. but do you ever lose faith that this might be solved in the end? No, I don't. No, I don't. I, I'm, I'm eminently confident. In 1990, I sat across the table from... Brian Linus, the father of Nikki, and uh, I gave Brian a commitment at that time that uh, the next time we meet, I'll be able to give him news of the resolution of this matter. Sadly, Brian died a few years ago, and uh, clearly I can't do that now, but uh, I, I still have that belief that this these crimes uh, will be solved. 
by someone. It really is a lifelong calling for you. You've left the force, but you're still advocating, you're still working in this space where you can and consulting to Victoria Police from time to time, as I understand. And you recently started a discussion which is a very uncomfortable one for Mm. people. The last frontier of uh, sexual abuse, intrafamilial, otherwise known as incest. Mm. Mm. In your career, you must have seen lots and lots of indications of that go unpunished. Oftentimes, oftentimes, as we've discussed in the past, I recall a time in, in the state of Victoria where the evidence of a child under the age of 14 had to be corroborated by other evidence before the child's testimony was permitted or accepted by the court. So it might be the abuser gets to to corroborate or destroy the evidence of the child, for instance. Well, that's a palace uh, situation for a one-on-one complaint where there is, there is no external corroborative evidence. So how widespread was it and is it today still? I don't know that anybody can put a, a, a number on that. The word significant is used often. Uh, what is significant? How long is a piece of string? Certainly, in, in my experience, intrafamilial sexual assault was so extreme that it certainly is deserved of a Royal Commission. Because we've had one into institutional yes, sex abuse. We've yes, had it into yes, a number of areas yes. in this and, and Tell me why. Why didn't we have one into all abuse of children? Why are we staying to institutions? Why are we just looking, not looking at intrafamilial? Maybe that's the thread that if you pull it, just pulls the whole tapestry down, well, unravels it. But the truth will be there, won't it? Sure. And but can we handle the truth, to, to <laughs> paraphrase <laughs> well, that line? Yeah. Well, we live in a world where we should be able to. Uh, allegedly, we are more respectful, more loving, more concerned about each other than ever before in history, uh, I, I personally don't subscribe to that, but that's what we're told. Well, wh- why are we not drilling, drilling, drilling into the causes of so much damage in the social fabric and the lives of so many people before those people have the opportunity to show their true potential as as members of our community, why are we not drilling down into every borough and avenue that could give us some insight to be able to prevent this in the future and and to make accountable those who are responsible for the past? So I wonder whether we, when we start to delve into that, we get to almost the true nature of our sexual deviance as human beings, yeah. that, that it's rampant, that, it's, that we have a, a veneer of civilization, but underneath... All manner of heinous things are going on, and if you start drilling into that, do you do you do you start to blow up families? Is it? probably, probably, but perhaps if we look at the, the other side, a well balanced, developing, twelve year old granddaughter sexually assaulted by her grandfather, and the family blames the girl for reporting blames the girl for what happened. Do we let that continue? We shouldn't. And I guess when I was looking at that whole Institutional Sex Abuse Royal Commission, yes. I was wondering where is the part where the families of those children said, we were aware but we were worried about being ostracised in the congregation, we were worried about the social impact because I've spoken to numerous 
victims of historical sex abuse. And they often say, I couldn't tell my parents. Mm. I couldn't tell anyone. I had mm. to grin and bear it. Mm. So I wonder, you know, mm. have we left the job half done because I think this sort of abuse became normalised yes. in our society. Yep. It was almost like a, rather than being a deviance, it was just another sexual proclivity of people. Mm. Yes, absolutely half done in, in my opinion. Not only have we left it half done with the area of intrafamilial sexual assault, but the whole gamut of online offending doesn't even get a mention. Why? Why? Because uh, at the end of the day, child molesters have moved from the paper world to the digital. that's, That's what's actually happened here. And yet, what actually are we doing to drill down into that? That side of it. Where yeah. are our royal commissions into these sorts of issues? Mate, you retired too soon. Oh. You should still be out there. <laughs> uh, but, well, look, in a lot of ways I would like to have been out there, yeah. but... Um, but you're certainly playing a strong role as an advocate now to get people thinking about these issues and you've, you've been available to media which are yeah. on these topics and it's yeah. been fantastic. Well, in, in my view, as I've said many times before, I joined the police force because I, I have no time for bullies and bullying. And... In an obscure perspective, sexual assault is just another form of bullying. It's a power relationship, an abuse of power. Um, exactly. Often. And, you know, I, I'm pleased to see that in some areas this is done. And that is that uh, many years ago when I was at the child exploitation squad, I advocated that every adult ought sign or make some declaration that once they turn 18 or 21 or whatever the maturity age is, that they accept their responsibility to protect those who can't protect themselves. They protect the children. They accept the responsibility to, in their own way, as best they can, to protect children from abuse in whichever form. By making that commitment... Practically speaking, it may not make any significant difference, but in the individual, it should reinforce the vulnerabilities of children and the responsibility of adults. Very good point. I mean, when you kicked off your career back in the 70s, what what year did you do? 77? 77. 77. Um, Back then you had a sectarian divide in the police force between the Catholics and the Protestants, and when it came to the the clergy, for instance, you had... Catholic police officers who were running interference for the abusers. How difficult was it in that environment where even the police force was compromised on that front? My recollection is that I, first of all, never encountered that. I don't say it didn't happen, and I'm sure it probably did happen, and there are lots of stories about the homicide squad in the 40s and 50s and so forth that reflect that. What my concern was at the time, and again... I lived through, professionally, the Royal Commission era of the 90s, and that was the height of of the child exploitation squad, as it was. And I was the, at one stage, I was the liaison officer between Victoria Police and uh, the Catholic Church. And it was expected that the Catholic Church would come to me, if not other contacts, but specifically to me, if they wanted some superficial inquiries made on individual priests and, and so forth that may there may be allegations against. And uh, 
Christine Nixon appointed me to that position and I was in that position for perhaps uh, two years and not once did the Catholic Church come to me. Now, I certainly didn't have any influence from any members of the Force Command or the Crime Command who may have been Catholics in relation to any work that we performed in relation to priests or brothers or um, religious persons at all. So I think there was some mythology in relation to the perspective that the Catholic Church had nobbled the police force. I'm sure there were individuals that were sympathetic to the Catholic Church. Mm. But uh, I, I can honestly say that I, I never encountered it. They must have looked at you, Chris O'Connor, Irish Catholic from way, way back. I don't even have to ask you the question. I know it's true. Um, did they look at you and thought, oh, well, maybe he's one of us. It'll be okay. Yeah, well, uh, probably. I mean, I was at the Christian Brothers for 10 years um, and survived. Uh, again, I was never approached in that capacity by anybody. Now, I'm quite expressive and I make myself known and points clear and perhaps in the early stages I made it very clear to them where my position was. And If they were in any doubt about that, the, the case of Father Michael Glennon and uh, your pursuit of him over decades would demonstrate where your real loyalties were. Tell us about Father Michael Glennon. I guess I rate him as the most evil man I've encountered in, in those 36 years. Um, given that he made an oath to shield, protect and educate, particularly to children and... Uh, He'd so dramatically and forcefully abused that vow uh, and was totally unrepentant, absolutely unrepentant. And refused when you put him in jail the first time in the 80s. Yeah. He refused any kind of sex rehabilitation or oh, course he, of therapy? Incorrigible. If, if we're talking about sociopaths and psychopaths, he was. He was. Uh, which is such a sad indictment to make on a, uh, a, a so-called person of the cloth. Uh, and indeed, and this is why I call him evil, not necessarily because of what he did, which was heinous enough. Could you give us the, the, uh, the truncated version of what he did? He sexually abused um, uh, teenagers who were under his care uh, from a youth group that he had set up. And he induced them through uh, mysticism and through Aboriginal cultural um, ceremonies and so forth to believe that he was uh, um, someone special. It was all about him. Either it was through his uh, karate uh, training, he, he threw himself up as a sensei, which is a person of high standing in, in the art, or through the uh, the cultural connections to his knowledge of uh, uh, Aboriginal heritage and so forth and his proximity to the earth. And uh, he set up a, a camp uh, through funds that, that were received and it was an excellent camp. I mean, the concept was brilliant and it was something that children in the area really needed, but he used it for his purposes. So you you busted him, he gets 11 years in jail, mm. and he 1996 he's mm. coming out, mm. but not if Chris O'Connor's got anything to do with it. What happened next? Well, 
it's not for me to say that we charged him upon his imminent parole but uh, or release, uh, but it's just that the cards fell that way and the timing fell that way. Uh, I can't say that I'm sorry that they did, but um, perhaps that's a bit of justice. Uh, in any event, he went nowhere. Now, I was criticised for that action. Why? Uh, allegedly, uh, criticism came from the um, prosecution's area and conveyed to me, and uh, I just made the point that everything I did was lawful. I think the community would agree with that. Mm. He died in jail in 2014, I think. He did. A, a skeleton of a man with a heart of stone and... Um, if, if people believe in heaven and hell, you can rest assured that he didn't go to heaven. Mm. Let's hope you don't meet him there. Can I, can I just give one, to, for people to understand this person, I, I'd like to give one, sure. one anecdote. We presented a, well, we were given a video in the course of an investigation of a football match that Glennon had organised between himself and uh, the senior members of his training area, the older boys, and the younger members of the of the group. It was just a social football football match. And of course Glennon, the psychopath, uh, was the captain coach of the seniors. He suffered badly from white line fever. And um, at one stage he uh, he in the course of the game it was very it was quite a, a hard, rough game and he was central in, in uh, dishing out the the hard hard business. And uh, anyway, at one of the quarter-time breaks, Glennon was addressing his team and one of the fathers interposed and said, look, you know, Father, aren't, aren't you being a little bit rough? Uh, you know, it's only a social match, you know. We're not on the MCG on grand final day. And I forget the exact words Glennon used, but he turned around to this father and he said, uh, you mind your own business. Keep that up and I'll get the bottom of your face and rip it over your head and then return to the addressing the boys. <laughs> bizarre. Absolutely it? bizarre. Amazing. Some people would say, I'm not one of them, that the um, there can be no adequate punishment for what crimes committed on children in those circumstances. The capital punishment would be appropriate. How do you go on that uh, debate? I'm ambivalent about capital punishment. Uh, I, I believe that that everybody has some hope in them of being an effective member of the community. However, there's a rare but small number of people for whom an injection should be the only answer. Glennon? Glennon, Glennon absolutely Glennon. Glennon, definitely. Um, there are a number of people who are still alive I could refer to, but uh, I better not. But they are a small number. The only problem I have with that, Chris O'Connor, is that we talked earlier about society's role in normalising this. Mm. And if we kill the perpetrator, do we lose the sense of how much this became normal in society, that it became a, a sexual proclivity rather than a, a dysfunction? And, and, and that's where my challenge is too. Uh, as I say, I, I am ambivalent about it because... I don't know that there's an answer to that question. 
I think what I've learned from you, and I think has been important in your career, is talking to people. Mm. For a young investigator, what what you've got to pick up very quickly is that these people aren't offending 24 hours of the day. What are they doing when they're not offending? And the answer to that often is they're basically ordinary people. Some are family members. Some are not. Some have high-profile jobs. Some don't. Uh, some are sportsmen, sportswomen. Some aren't. But at the end of the day, they're doing what the rest of us do. Now, we each have had a lifetime of social development dealing with other people. So when these people are not offending, they're other people. So we ought to be able to communicate at them at least at that level. And if we can communicate at somebody at a level which connects to them, develops rapport, then we have developed a relationship, no matter how tenuous. But we have developed a relationship. Now, depending on how we work on that and the circumstances, the environment and so forth, will depend on how far we can then take that into our professional conversation. Yeah. I think empathy or at least some interest or knowledge of someone's psyche is very important. Mm. Stanley Taylor, he was the perpetrator of the Russell Street bombing. He, he encouraged others to do yep. that. He was a, a Svengali but also a weak coward as well. Yeah. But his defenders talk about his institutionalising in boys' homes and abuse and so on and so forth and then ending up in Pentridge and going to H Division, going in as a minor crook, coming out as a heinous murderer. Do you have to bear that in mind when you're looking into someone like this? He is a perpetrator but there's also a background. And how much better are you going to do if you understand those human elements? Yes, you do. And they're relevant. And look, our role, whether we like it or not, is to present before the court all the information that is relevant to this charge and motivation to commit the crime is relevant to the charge. Now, some police will say to you, no, bullshit, no, 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 let's just nail him for the job, and we're right. We don't have to go showing any of this other other stuff. My view is that um, I'd question that. I'd question that because simply a crime is not committed in isolation of a person's surroundings and awareness and psychology. We have a right, if it needs to be shown to the court that this person picked on that person because of this particular fantasy or this particular spell that they were under. And people will say, oh, no, no, that's the job of the defence once they're convicted. Yes, it is. Of course it is. On sentencing, but on the issue of guilt or not, um, I would say it's also relevant. Because there may there is there mitigation that may alter what the ultimate uh, conviction is. Conviction of lower crime, for example. We absolutely have a demand to uh, present that information to the court. Otherwise, we're not doing our job properly. Yes. And you also, I guess you make it more likely when you create trust and yeah. a lack of judgment that this person's going to tell you about other things he may have done or what other people may have done. So the, the harvest may be more bountiful than you think and not just a, at that moment. Indeed. I mean, at the end of the day, our objective is to conduct the investigation in the interest of justice in accordance with the specifications of the law. Now, the specifications of the law are very, very wide. And 
I'm not trying to be sanctimonious by making out that we're some sort of um, psychological purveyors that try to be Mr. Nice Guy all the time. That's not the issue here. The issue is that you don't have to be Mr. Nasty. The issue is that this person may be interviewed by coppers after you. They're a work in progress. They're a work in progress. My and they word. can end up being a very valuable informer. On the other side of the coin, you've also spent a lot of time talking to victims, in, in yeah. sex abuse in particular. Yeah. And um, that's a very, very delicate area too because too many victims of sex abuse feel like the, the, the next attack took place during the prosecution and yeah. so forth. How do you avoid that syndrome? How do you, A, give them a sense of comfort and safety, but also reality about the chances of getting a result in their case? In essence, you tell them as you understand it because you're wanting them to tell you as they understand it. And that's how you develop a respectful but more importantly a, a solid relationship with the people. They need to feel safe and safety isn't just physically safe. They need to feel that you, the first person perhaps often, they've ever told their secret to, that you're not only going to believe them, but to give them some support. Now, like it or not, that's the position you're in, and it's not good enough to say, oh, no, my job's just to take the statement and that's it. That's not the case. And you know also that the court process is not an absolute search for truth. It's a contest on the day. Ah, it's a game. And that that person is going to come under fire from the defence barrister who will literally try to tear them apart and make them yeah. the issue. Yeah. How can you be honest with the, the victim and say it's going to be okay when you're just not sure? Well, well you don't say it's going to be okay. Simple as that. You, as I say, you tell it as you understand it and say, look, as we sit here now with what we have, we're not going to get this up. I'm sorry. That is a reality. It's not the issue of me believing you or not. I hear what you have to say and I've made a note of everything you've had to say. And on the face value of what you've had to say without any other evidence, we won't be proceeding with this. Now, you don't like doing that, but to somebody who's had their concept of trust abused their physical well-being threatened, people who feel no support, no moral, emotional, physical, practical support, they want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear any more bullshit. You're dead right. And you gave me some golden advice, which I'm going to quote now. When I was talking to you about, I'd been interviewing uh, a victim of a very high-profile serial sex abuser who'd never got any justice and I was in the process of persuading her to do an interview. And I was doing very well until I spoke to you, I have to say. She'd agreed to that. But you said to me, and I should run the audio if you don't mind, I'll run a bit of the audio. Have a listen to this. You have to be prepared to be there whenever that person needs you or perceives they need you. If that's three o'clock in the morning, well, that's three o'clock in the morning. Now, in my role as a detective, I didn't like being woken up at three o'clock in the morning, but I was prepared for that given it's not about me. It's about the person on the end of the phone and we sometimes lose sight of that in 
our own quests and, and you and your journalistic quest, we can sometimes lose sight of the other person involved and where they're coming from, what's happening in their world. I guess the point you're making there is that they've never shared this before. It's suddenly out in the world. Will I be the one who's there at one, two, three or four or five in the morning when they need that support? And I had to, to say to you, well, probably not. Mm. So that was a lesson in being responsible. I thank you for that. Oh, but, but it's the facts. It's the reality, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's not for me to take on your burden because I can't. The way to be too much, too many people. And I don't think I'd, I'd have the strength to do that. I think you're right to, I mean, I think we all try to be the saviour. It's always great to be the saviour. You're the one who's going to make everything right. Mm. But that's not the way the world works. No, it's not. It's, it can be a cruel world and you must be aware of that. But hopefully I can give you some assistance to help you deflect that harsh world to help you have respect yourself again, to help you have some self-esteem that enables you to stand up above and beyond. I mean, there's, the world is full of examples of broken spirits that have been able to rise above it all. And what is, what's the difference there when you have people, you've seen people and their depths as victims and somehow rise up? What's the common denominator when that happens for you? I wouldn't say it's euphoric, but it is most satisfying. But is it, a, is it about following the pro- – you talk about process. Oh, yeah, you talk absolutely. about methodologies. You yep, talk about being yep. professional. Yeah. How important is it that you remember all that, even in emotional, moment, euphoric moments, mm. that, you know, you're still doing a job that has to be done very well? This is where the professionalism does come into it. That's where you have to be balanced. Touch wood. Yeah. You have to be a relatively balanced person who, who understands the suffering that's out there but knows that they alone can't ameliorate it in every instance. They can make it better in some aspects of the person's life, such as the pursuit of justice, but I can't help you to be a better mother, brother. I can't help you to... to um, resolve your sexuality. I can help you to see it, understand it from where I sit and more importantly to acknowledge what affects occurring. Now that's empathy, to acknowledge it, not not to give the answers. Uh, Plus, we are part psychologists, we are part counsellors, we're part prison warders, all the usual business. That is true of a police member, particularly investigators. But don't get carried away with it. I get to see some of the things, a fraction of what you saw in your career, and I start to have a jaded view of the world, and particularly men, and mm. in particular young men. Mm. What's going wrong with our young men and their their expression of their sexuality that's leading to so much violence, or at least we're, we're knowing about it now. What is the problem? Drugs and alcohol, for a start. Uh, the principle, I, I mean, <laughs> during the lockdown, as much as we were all crawling up the wall, street crimes were pretty small. Crashed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely crashed. Well, because the pubs weren't open. There was nowhere for the groups to go. And, and uh, see... <sighs> From my where I sit, 
males operate in groups. Where there's a blue, a fight on somewhere, invariably it's not a single male v a single male. It's somebody who is a part of a group who's been offended by somebody else who's a part of a group, both of which have uh, got a skin full and have taken umbrage to something. If they were sober, would have walked away. Males operate in a pack context. More likely to be violence if there's a group of males together than if there's just the one alone. Now that may seem to yeah. be a moot point, but um, oh, well, I think it's cowards, isn't it? I guess it's like the you know it's the it's the, the well, gang lack mentality. Of no, it's lack yeah. of respect for the human being. Yeah, but the one that gets me now, as a father of yeah of daughters, a daughter, um, is this a woman just goes to a nightclub, walking home in well-lit streets. It's, it's happened too many times, mm. raped and murdered, yeah. viciously, brutally. Mm. There might be a drug involved. Mm. The common denominator, an angry young man. An angry young man, yeah. And oftentimes, uh, too often for it to be more than a fluke, some sort of drug or alcohol involved. And we're seeing some of these people pleading diminished responsibility because of drug abuse or some mental health issue, you know, it's still, it's a heinous crime. And I think there's an actus rea, mens rea uh, yeah. scenario here. Yeah. I think they're getting off too often. You know, there, know. Is, there, there is a guilty mind. There is, there is a guilty act. They are rightly found guilty. My view is that the adjudicators are not reflecting the community desire. They are being found guilty. Sometimes an effective sentence. I mean, for, for murder, for example, you can be given up to life with no minimum. For rape, 25 years. Uh, I'm sure people have been sentenced to 25 years for rape. I can't off the top of my head think of any. No. Um, if they're getting that, they're getting out much earlier. Absolutely. I mean... There are a handful of murderers in our prisons who are doing life with no minimum. Handful. You know, we are told from a very early age, you are responsible for your choices in life. You are responsible for your choices in life. You break the law, this is the penalty that you can get. Based on what you have done, you should, based on the nature of the crime, you should get whatever the appropriate penalty is. Not because you have had this upbringing that has been deficient and because you have acted under the influence of drugs and alcohol, this has occurred, we're going to take that overly into account and we're only going to give you a third of what you should get. The pendulum swings too far both directions, I guess. Mm. Given what you've been through... And the highs and the lows of it. Mm. What would you say to a, a young person, male or female, who's thinking of going into the police and, and into this sex offences area? What should they be expecting and should they do it? I'd be asking, first of all, to um, have they got any baggage that they can't take with them? Are they a victim who wants to expunge the past? Are they a victim who wants revenge for the past? Are they a loved one of a victim who wants revenge? Are they somebody who 
sees sex offenders as maggots, dogs, animals, because they're not any one of those three. Their behaviour is certainly tantamount to that. They're still members of the human race, and also members of the human race, uh, we've got to understand that uh, there's got to be some hope. And if we go in there with the attitude that they are just, they don't deserve anything, that's going to show out. So you've got to manage your own emotions, beliefs, morals, and be satisfied that you can be impartial at the end of the day. That's a big challenge for anybody. And that's why we've always only taken volunteers in this area. People who want to go there, who choose to go there. Sometimes there have been people who have gone to our area for the wrong reasons and fortunately it's come to light and we've been able to find them somewhere else. There are others who have come there for their own damaged reasons and again we've been able to accommodate them and and, um, move them to somewhere that's more appropriate for them. Good. So... I think you can be fairly sure of your motivation and it, and it, it proved to be true. But at the end of all this, anything left undone? Any regrets? No, because I did it my way. <laughs> Very good answer. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being on Australian Detectives and thank you for your service. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Adam. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews, and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.